we enjoy toward the end of our day just to kind of kick back and unwind for a while and to get informed of what's happening in this community that we serve and that we love immensely. <clears throat> Usually she'll take a section and I'll take a section and then, you know, we'll swap somewhere along the way. And, and one evening, just recently, Gladine begins to laugh while she's reading the newspaper. Well, I know she doesn't read the comics. So my curiosity was stirred and I said, what's so funny? And she goes, this help wanted ad. And, and I, I said, a help wanted ad? I mean, why would a help wanted ad be humorous? So she passed it over to me, and pretty soon I was joining her in the laughter. Now, this is one of the longest help wanted ads I think I've ever seen. Um, so I'm just going to read excerpts to you. You ready? Such and such an establishment, I'll leave it anonymous, since this is a small town, is looking for hard-working employees that possess responsibility and are reliable. So far, so good, right? I mean, that sounds like good standard help one of that. But it gets humorous from here on. You ready? Please do not apply if you oversleep, have no alarm clock, have to hold on to a cell phone all day, or become an expert at your job with no need to learn or take advice after the first day must be able to talk and work at the same time. Well, that's a trick. Must be, able to rem must be able to remember to come back after lunch. <laughs> Should not expect to receive purple ribbons or gold stars for showing up to work on time. <laughs> Please apply in person and then the address of this business. <laughs> you know, as I read that, I got thinking, you know what, that employer who wrote this help wanted ad has clearly had problems with irresponsible employees along the way. I mean, something was moving this employer to write an ad like that, and I just read to you part of it. He clearly had been disappointed with some employees who uh, were lazy, including one, interestingly, apparently, that forgot to come back to work after lunch. <laughs> Join me, please, in Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. For those of you who are guests today, again, a special welcome to you. Uh, in the summer months, those of us in the preaching team have been working through select Proverbs in this series that we're calling Wise Up. And today we're going to learn about ants. And we're going to learn about work, God-honoring, gospel-fueled work. Have you found Proverbs 6? Follow along now. As I read aloud, verses 6 through 11, the Bible says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her way, ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Laziness. What does laziness look like? Look at verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Why does a sluggard need to be prodded? Why does he or she need to be prodded to do his work? 
He's refusing to get out of bed. In fact, in verse 10, the, the proverb writer actually uses a bit of Holy Spirit-inspired sarcasm. <laughs> it says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. This person's trying to get comfortable. He's trying to ease into his laziness, not wanting to be disturbed. Now, can you imagine, just use your sanctified imagination, can you imagine some of the excuses that a sluggard gives? The alarm clock goes off. Just, just, just 10 more minutes. Just 10 more minutes of sleep. But then 10 turns into 20, and 20 turns into 30. But you know, it might not be the sluggard's bed, even as the kids mentioned in the video. It might be the sluggard's couch. Just, just one more episode of my favorite program. And then the next episode, and then the next episode, and until suddenly she's falling asleep on the couch in the wee hours of the night. Well, how about this excuse? Don't rush me. Just give me a few more minutes with this game. I'm almost to the next level. Well, I'll get to my chores later. Well, here's another one. I'm just going to scroll down just, just another few posts on social media to see what my friends are doing. And 20 minutes later, she's still scrolling. Or maybe the sluggard says something like this. I'll get to my responsibilities in a little bit. In a little bit, somehow gets added to another little bit, and that little bit gets added to another little bit, and pretty soon you have a big hunk of wasted time. Procrastination is a favorite pastime of sluggards, don't you think? Or how about a couple more excuses? I don't like doing that. I think, I think someone else should do it. I think my brother should do it. I think my sister should do it. I think, you know, and we point the finger to someone else. I, I think he should do it. I think she should do it. I don't like doing those things. Or, or here's one. Thankfully, I don't hear too often. I, I don't like doing hard work. You know what? Maybe I'll hit it big in the lottery. And then I can get rich without having to work for it. Isn't it fascinating how many different kinds of excuses a sluggard can come up with? A rationale for, I'll get to my work later. <laughs> what happens to lazy people? Look at verse 11. What happens to lazy people? Verse 11 says, And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Now, let me just step aside for a minute and say something I think we need to hear in a church like ours, in a community like ours, that is, compared to most of the world, pretty well off. Not all poor people are lazy. I think it's easy when those of us who have more than we need see a person in poverty, we can piously look down our noses and assume that those people are living in poverty through their own negligence. Not all poor people are lazy. Some people live in poverty because of illness or maybe a disability. 
Or maybe the primary breadwinner in the family has abandoned the family. Or maybe the person is suffering from some social injustice. Or in many parts of the country, war. Let's not flip this proverb over and say it means something it doesn't. Not all poor people are lazy. But there are people who are lazy through their own choice. And the writer of the proverb says, poverty's going to get you. Whether you want it or not, whether you're anticipating it or not, poverty is going to overtake you. And he uses an analogy of a robber, an armed robber even. Now imagine in our modern culture if some armed robber came up to you unexpectedly and pulled a gun and says, give me your money. Would you say, no thanks, I think I'll keep it. I don't think so. I mean, you'd be fishing out your money as fast as you could. <laughs> you realize in a situation like that, you really don't have a choice. You, you weren't anticipating getting robbed. You weren't wanting to get robbed. But you just got robbed. And you just lost your money. Well, you know, some people who are lazy live in denial. A self-delusion denial. They think, nothing's going to happen. It'll all work out. I, I, don't have to, I don't have to do my work. It'll work out somehow. Will, somehow my schoolwork will get done. Somehow the house chores will get done. Somehow I'll earn some money. You know, it's okay. Listen, if we're lazy, it will have consequences. And that's kind of one of the points of this proverb. There are consequences of being lazy. If you're responsible to go and earn a living and you refuse to do so, you're able, and yet you refuse to work, poverty's going to come. Whether you want it or not, whether you're anticipating it or not, poverty will come upon you. The creditors are going to start calling. The landlord wants payment for the rent. That TV that you've sat there watching hour after hour is going to get repoed. There are consequences. This is true with schoolwork, too, isn't it? Kids, school starts in a few weeks. I was waiting for the cheers. I, you know. <laughs> There's one. That was from a parent. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, school's going to start in a few weeks. Um, if kids, what happens if you don't do your schoolwork? What happens? What kind of grades do you get? We've got a, a number of teachers in the room here, too. <laughs> what happens if you don't do your work, kids? You get failing grades, don't you? Teacher's going to fail you because you didn't do your homework. And that's kind of a spinoff from this proverb. It's kind of like if you don't do your work, there's consequences. It's true in the employment realm too, isn't it? If you get hired to do a certain job and out of sheer laziness, you don't do what's required of you, you know what happens. Now we have all these protections today, so you might just get a warning at first and Maybe your company requires two warnings or three warnings, but I guarantee you eventually you're going to be on the street. You're going to be without a job because of your laziness of not doing your work. Okay, let's, let's ask another question. What causes laziness anyway? Where does laziness come from? Doesn't it come down to having a self-centered, self-serving view of life? 
laziness, if you think about it as a Christian, laziness happens when we lose our vertical orientation to life, when we lose sight of the fact that we're image bearers of the God who made us, that he made us to be fruitful for his glory. He enables us to be fruitful for his glory. We lose sight of that, and, and we begin to turn inward. We, we, we begin to just turn our eyes and our hearts inward, and we think, life's all about me. Life's all about me. It's my life. And I'll live it however I want. And I don't want to do that kind of work. I don't want to do that job. I don't want to do my homework. And it's very self-serving. Now, if you think about it, everybody likes to eat, right? Everybody has to eat sometime. You know, if you're going to have something to eat, somebody's got to go work to earn the money to buy that food. And somebody has to work to prepare the food. Somebody has to work to serve the food. Someone has to clean up after you've eaten the food. And the lazy person is saying by his or her attitude, I don't want to work, but I sure like to eat. So I want you to serve me. I don't want to work. But I want you to work. I want you to earn the money to buy me food. I don't want to get, I don't want to do the work of fixing the food. I want you to fix the food to serve me. I don't want to clean up. You clean up after I eat. And by the way, while you're up, can you get me a drink? You know, it's, it's you serve me. Life's about me, and I want you to serve me. Isn't that just the opposite? Isn't that just the opposite? of what someone who's been gripped by the gospel, the way he thinks and lives? What did Paul write in Philippians chapter 2? Let me just read this to you. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I'm reading from the Bible. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking at your own interests, but each other, each of you looking at the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset is that of Christ Jesus, the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And then the author, Paul, goes on to describe how Jesus Christ, even though he existed in equality with God, he gave it all up to come and serve us. He gave up all the prerogatives, all those privileges that he enjoyed in heaven to come and serve us and to die on the cross as a servant for the people he was redeeming. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Laziness is an expression of selfishness, which is the opposite of Christ. So what is the uh, person, the lazy person in this proverb called to do? He, he tries to get the sluggard's attention, doesn't he? And he says, go learn from the ant. Now, maybe you've watched ants, or maybe you've watched YouTubes of ants, but uh, the other night I was out giving our shrubs a haircut and uh, picked up a couple of ant nests. You stood there and watched them for a few minutes. You've done similar things. You've watched ants. Tell me a couple things about ants. When you watch ants, what, what's one of the first things you tend to notice about them? They're busy. Busy as an ant. You, you watch ants, and, and they're just scurrying all around. It looks like they never stop. And, and, and quite frankly, they almost never do. Ants are active a huge majority of a 24-hour period. Yeah, they're very active. They're very diligent. And yet, in God's amazing providence and how he designed these tiny insects, 
how big is an ant's brain? Um, and yet God designed these little insects, not only to work hard, but to work ahead. And somehow in their little ant brain, they know the winter's coming. And so whenever it's warmer, they're out there gathering food and taking it down into their nests for the cold winter months. They're planning ahead. Uh, they're very diligent that way. What else do we notice about ants in this proverb? This one might be a little more subtle, but the, the author of the proverb states it. What, what else do we know about ants in this proverb? They're self-initiating. If you watch a, an anthill and watch the ants working, there's, there's no boss ant up on top cracking the whip. Okay, all you peon ants, get busy. Uh, there's no boss ant. There's no ant making the other ants work. They all just work. They all just take initiative and, and work. In fact, if you watch ants, you'll notice that if one or two of them are trying to drag a pretty big morsel of food toward the hole going down into the nest, other ants just gather around and help. They, they just do. They, they help each other that way. It's fascinating to watch how ants work. They're very diligent and they're very self-initiating and the, and the person calling to the sluggard says, let's go to ant school. What can we learn from the ants. Now, in the time we have left this morning, what, what do we have, 15 minutes or so? How would you like to join me in a 15-minute overview of the Bible building an ethic of work from Genesis to Revelation? I'll talk fast, you listen fast, okay? Now, to save time, I've actually put these verses in my notes. I'm just going to read them to you. If you're a note-taker, I'll give you the reference. What we're going to do is we're going to start at the beginning of our Bibles. I'm not kidding you. We're going to start at the beginning and go the whole way to the end. And in 15 minutes, Lord willing, we're going to get an overview of what the Bible teaches about work. Let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God put the man and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now a lot of people assume that work is somehow part of the curse. Um, not too many months ago, I was speaking at a fairly large men's conference, and I was a breakout session speaker. And um, I went to hear the keynote, the, the plenary speaker, and he began his speech. I hate to call it a sermon. He began his speech by calling out a question. He says, is work part of the curse? And I'm sitting back a few hundred people, and I shout, no! And all these guys around me start shouting, yes! And the speaker said, that's right, yes it is. And I'm sitting there thinking, no it's not. <laughs> no it's not. Could you please read Genesis 2? You know, I, I was a bit frustrated. I, I felt like standing up and saying something, but I'd probably never get invited back to speak at that conference. <laughs> but see, I was amazed that the great majority of men in that room were shouting, yes, work's part of the curse. No it's not. Work was instituted before the curse. You see, God is a working God. He's a working God. He created everything, right? He did the work of created everything, and then he made human beings, men and women, he made human beings to reflect him. And so when he made Adam and put him in the garden, he says, I want you to reflect me, the creator God, the creator working God, and I want you to be creative. I want you to work here in the garden. I want you to manage it, work it. For my glory. But man did sin, didn't he? And what happened when Adam sinned? 
what I, I call it a frustration factor. Uh, when Adam sinned, God pronounced a curse, not only on the humans, not only on the serpent, but on all of creation. And so all of creation, and if you go home today and you're driving down the road to your home, you look at the trees, you look at the squirrels, you look, you look at anything and you realize everything I'm looking at has in one way or another been affected by the curse. And let's not miss the obvious, everything dies. Every living thing dies. Trees, squirrels, deer, your dog, everything eventually dies. Do you know why? Because mankind sinned. One of the consequences was God pronounced this frustration factor upon all of creation because of Adam's sin. Let me read Genesis 3, 17 through 19. God, speaking to Adam, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the, f and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And so Adam, as an image bearer, is still commissioned to work. You read Genesis 3.23, and Adam was still told he was supposed to work, only now he's working this world with the frustration factor. Now work doesn't always work. You know that. Work doesn't always work. Things break down. Projects don't get done on time. People don't follow through. Work doesn't always work. There's weeds. There, there's a frustration factor now because of this, because of man's rebellion. And yet, even though mankind fell into sin, there was one image bearer who never sinned. There was one image bearer who never did sin. He's the perfect image bearer. He's the perfect worker, Jesus Christ. I was perusing the Gospel of John this past week, and certain verses stood out to me in light of this coming sermon, the one today. <clears throat> John 5, 17, Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and, and I'm working, Jesus said. My Father's working, and I'm working. John 4, 34, listen to the, the heart of Jesus here. He said, My food, my sustenance, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish. night before he died on the cross, this, this, this verse always gets my attention. The night before the cross, Jesus said, I have finished the work you've given me to do. No other human being has ever been able to say that. But Jesus Christ, the perfect image bearer, the perfect worker, the only perfect worker, said, I've done it, Father. I have finished everything you gave me Now, if you and I are in Christ, if by grace through faith, and that's true for many of us here, if by grace through faith you are welded to Jesus Christ, you are in Christ, then that affects everything, including your work ethic. Being in Christ, the gospel begins to shape us. The gospel shapes our thinking. The gospel shapes our attitude. The gospel shapes our actions including our work ethic. We have a new, a renewed perspective on our work. 
we realize that we were created to work for the glory of God, we were redeemed to work for the glory of God. Let me just give you a few verses on this. How about Ephesians 2.10? Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, he made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're created for work. We were recreated for work. The gospel fuels our work with purpose. Listen, my friend. There is no need for a Christian to look at his or her work as drudgery. I don't care if we're talking about doing the dishes or vacuuming the floor or making those products at your workplace or filing reports. There is no work that needs to be viewed as drudgery by a Christian. The gospel gives work purpose. One of the most profound passages I think we can read on this is found in Colossians 3. So if you've missed some of these other references, make sure you get this one. Colossians 3, verses 22 through 24. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, writes this. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. That gives purpose. When you do those dishes, you say, I am serving Christ by doing these dishes heartily for the glory of God. I'm changing this diaper for the glory of God. I'm making those parts for the glory of God. I'm meeting with this customer for the glory of God. I'm filing that report for the glory of God. I'm teaching these students for the glory of God. I'm doing my homework for the glory of God. I'm ministering in the children's department for the glory of God. It gives all of work purpose. There's no drudgery any longer in Christ. Not only does it give work purpose, but it gives work delight. It gives work Delight. I was thinking about Titus 2.14. It says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people belonging to God. A people for his own possession who are, I'm quoting here, zealous for good works. It doesn't say willing to do good works. It says zealous, like Give me some work to do for the glory of God. I love serving him by serving his people. Give me some more work to do for the glory of God. Zealous for good works. Looking for it. Delighting in it. The Bible talks about people transformed by the gospel doing their work for the glory of God, but also for the betterment of his people. The book of Ephesians is so neatly laid out in two halves. The first three chapters describe God's grace, the gospel. The, the other three chapters talk about how that gospel transforms daily life. Okay, if you've been impacted by the gospel, here's what that means for you as a husband, 525. This is what this means for you as a wife, 522. This is what this means for you as a Christian child. 
This is what this means for you as a Christian dad, a Christian mom. He, he applies the gospel to these everyday situations. One of them got my attention was 428. In 428, Paul says, let the thief steal no longer. Why do thieves steal? I want that. I don't care if it's yours. I want it and I'm taking it. But now the gospel comes and transforms the lives of that former thief. So now what's his orientation? Paul says, let the thief steal no longer, but the, let him do honest work with his hands. Not only so that he has enough for himself, it's, Paul says, but so that he can share with others. And the gospel transforms our work that we not only do our work for self-satisfaction, but we do our work for the glory of God, but also so that we can graciously impact the lives of other people, reflecting the grace and the generosity of the God who saved us. So gospel-shaped workers do their work for the glory of God, but with an attitude of, how can I use this for the glory of God? Who can I help with this? This is so critical that Paul made some pretty hard statements to the Thessalonian church. In chapter, chapter 2, 2 Thess 2, he says that if, if a person who professes to be a Christian, if a person says, I'm part of the church, and yet refuses to work, you know what Paul says, how the church is to respond to someone like that? If a, if a professing Christian will not work, some of you know this, then don't let him eat. Right, that, that's pretty bold, isn't it? Paul says this is so important that uh, the lazy people, people that are able to work but refuse to help, don't let them eat. Okay, we are up to the new heavens and the new earth. We've been talking about this era of the gospel. <coughs> what about eternity? Now, some of you are veterans of the church. You've heard me talk about this before. <coughs> Many people in the world assume certain things about eternal life. In heaven, we're going to be sitting on clouds, playing with what over our heads? Halos. What's wrong with those three things? They're not true. <laughs> There's nothing biblical about any of those. You're not going to be spending eternity sitting on a cloud. Where'd you ever get that? Cartoons? You didn't get them in the Bible. <laughs> now, what are we going to be doing in eternity? Go to the end of the Bible. We started at the beginning, Genesis 2. What's it say in Revelation 22? 22, 5. What, what are we going to be doing in all eternity? John writes there, by the Holy Spirit, they will reign forever and ever. God's going to come back. Christ is going to inaugurate a new heaven and a new earth. A, a sin-free, curse-free, physical, eternal earth. Heaven and earth will merge. A new heaven and a new earth. Heaven will come down. God's going to come down. He's going to make his dwelling with us. And we will live here forever and ever. And what, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be reigning. Uh, the, the high king is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And those of us who are redeemed, glorified believers, we will spend eternity as princes and princesses managing this new earth under the auspices of none other than the benevolent, gracious, loving King Jesus. 
And our work will have no sin, no curse. There won't be any frustration factor. Everything's going to work. Everything's going to be fruitful. Everything's going to be delightful. As we spend eternity managing this earth, the new earth, under the smile of King Jesus. Does that remind you of anything working in paradise or in the presence of God himself? Does that remind you of anything else you've read in the Bible? Eden. The Bible begins and ends in a garden. The Bible begins and ends with paradise. So even though we're living in this era between the gardens, we know that yet to come, there's a new heavens and a new earth. And on that new earth, we're going to have delightful, fruitful work to do. Reflecting our God. We will be glorified image bearers. That's a biblical work ethic in 16 minutes. <laughs> so what kind of conclusions, what are the take-homes from this proverb? Look to the ant, O sluggard. Let me not go any further without asking you this question. Have you awakened from your spiritual slumber and done the primary work of putting your faith in Jesus Christ? Jesus said in John 6.29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the work of God. Lots of people want to know, what work do I have to do to get to heaven? Jesus said, I'll tell you what work you have to do. The work you have to do is to put your faith in that one whom God sent, Jesus Christ. Have you awakened out of your sleep of death and put your faith in Jesus Christ? How many people, when they hear the gospel, say, oh, not, not quite yet, you know, I want to sow my oats. I want to have a little fun in life. Maybe later, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe later. Maybe later I'll put my faith in Christ. And the spiritual sluggard. They refuse to obey God's command to do the work of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And if a sluggard doesn't repent of that, he will perish in his or her sins. We need to hear the loud cry of Ephesians 5.14 where when the scripture says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake, O sleeper. Have you done the primary work of arising from your spiritual sluggardness and put your faith in Jesus Christ? For those of you that have, how does this biblical work ethic impact how you live everyday life? And let me make an aside comment to those of us in the room who are parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles. What are the younger generations learning from us about a biblical work ethic by how we live and how we talk? Are you a complainer about your work? Are you a whiner about your work? I mean, if we live that way as adults, the younger generation is going to build a lot of their work ethic from what they hear and see from us. Are we modeling in our actions, in our attitudes, and in our words? 
that the gospel has gotten traction in our work ethic. That we do our work around the home. We do our work at the workplace. We do our work in the body of Christ with an attitude that honors Christ, that shows fruitfulness and delight, purpose. Are the kids picking that up from us? Sometimes I was so encouraged to hear the kids talk about their dads and their moms being hard workers. That's an evidence of God's grace in the lives of so many moms and dads in our church. Kids, can I encourage you? Let me talk as a grandpa here. <laughs> Let me encourage you kids to start, just start with one thing you could start doing around home without anyone telling you to, without anyone prodding you. I'm not saying limit to this, but start by picking one thing. And you say, I'm going to start doing that task. I'm going to start doing that chore without any complaint, without anybody prodding me, without mom or dad telling me I have to. What's it going to be, kids? Making your bed? Putting your clothes in the hamper instead of leaving them on the floor? Helping with the dishes, depending on your age. Helping with the mowing. Helping with the laundry. Clearing the table. Something. You pick. You don't have to tell your mom and dad, but it might not hurt. <laughs> Students, we talk about school starting here in a few weeks. Students, how does the gospel impact your work ethic at school? Do you do your homework before you play? Older students are responsible to plan out your work over the semester, or do you wait to the last minute to do your assignment, or do you work ahead? Do you see your schoolwork as purposeful? Discipline yourself to take initiative. I think some of the teachers in this room would say amen to uh, students. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you went up to your teacher and said, how can I help? Is there something I could do here in the classroom to make your work a little bit easier? How about in your place of employment? Those of you out in the workforce, be on time. Be on time. I think employers appreciate that when employees show up on time. Not overextending breaks. You have so long to take a break, take your break, get back to work. Do more than you're expected. Or how about this? Work as if Jesus Christ himself was signing your paycheck. Wouldn't that be transformational? I don't care what our work is. If each of us in the employment world worked as if Jesus Christ himself was signing our paycheck, wouldn't that give work purpose? And even here in the church, you know, I'm so thankful for the numerous volunteers we have in our church. People that say, how can I work for the glory of God here in my church family? Thankfully, it's rare to hear this. But occasionally, you know, I might hear someone say, I'm leaving because no one was serving me. It makes me sad. No, it does make me sad that no one is serving them. But, you know, I, sometimes I wonder, well, is, is, have you served? <laughs> As a pastor, times graciously ask that question, how? How have you served? And so even the work that gets done here in the body of Christ, you know, to ask the question, how can I serve? How can I serve? Do you have gifts, time, resources? How can you serve? You know, that work applies here in the church life as well. 